Welcome to the intersection of faith and curiosity, a podcast from All Saints Episcopal Church in Richland, Washington. Here we explore a variety of topics and issues, questioning, listening, and learning together. Come join the conversation. Uh, I'm your host for this episode, Reverend Shana Hawks. I'm the curate or the more junior priest at All Saints in Richland. And I am joined for an episode on Christian nationalism by Catherine Stewart and Reverend Nathan Emsall. And I would love for the two of you to introduce yourselves. Um, Nathan, would you like to go first? No, but I will. <laughs> uh, my name is the Reverend Nathan Ipsel. I am, like you, Shana, an Episcopal priest. Uh, in fact, I was ordained a deacon the same day you were, and I was ordained a priest the same day you were, kneeling side by side in the same cathedral before the same bishop. So it's really good to talk with you. Uh, but I'm here today as the Executive Director of St. Mary's the largest online community of Christians putting our faith into action for love and social justice. So we're using online campaigns and digital technology to reclaim Christianity from the religious right for the, the values of the gospel and for moral progressive policy. And this year, our focus is really on seeing the power of Christian nationalism. Really looking forward to this episode. And I, it's just great to to be with you because I, I've only been in Richland a couple times, but the diocese. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Nathan and Catherine. Great to be here in conversation with you both. Um, my name is Catherine Stewart. I'm the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Danger Lies National. I'm an investigative journalist and I write about politics, policy, uh, religious freedom, and controversies over separation of church and state. And my work appears in the New York Times, The Guardian, Public, uh, NBC, and and many other. Can I jump in to say it's a real honor to be on this podcast with Catherine because The Power Worshippers is one of my favorite recent books on politics, one of the best books on this topic. And uh, your last New York Times essay, Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next, you know, sums up so much of this so well. So, you know, I need to just sit back and write. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be in conversation with you as well. Well, I'm just thrilled with uh, the work of Faithful America. You're so action-oriented. I think it's too easy these days for people to sort of sit back and wring their hands and think, well, what can I do? You guys are actually doing um, your work really matters. Thank you both for being here. It's an honor to share audio time with both of you. Uh, to start off, I think we should cover the basics. Let's talk about what Christian nationalism is and how we can recognize it. I'd love to jump in here if you don't mind. Um, Christian nationalism is uh, an anti-democratic uh, anti-democratic political ideology that says the idea uh, sort of conflates the idea of America, particular religious and cultural identities. It says that America was founded as a supposedly so-called Christian nation, as they define Christianity, and our law should be based on the Bible and right thinking. Americans need to quote unquote reclaim America in order to get back to you know what makes America great. And it's um, it's also um, not just an ideology, but a political movement. It's an organized quest for power. So Christian nationalism has an ideology, but it also has an organized infrastructure. Um, and a key way to describe the movement is in terms of its political now completely dominates the Republican Party. I think this is a movement that for many years the Republican Party thought they could make use of and has now been sort of overtaken by it. And in fact, its allied politicians were able to dominate state legislature, stack the Supreme Court with justices favorable agenda. And, you know, the, the principal goal of the movement and the goal of its leaders really is power. They look forward to the day when reliant government, number one, policies that privilege people with, a, you know, correct beliefs, 
Number two, uh, power and influence for themselves. And we saw how uh, former President Trump gave them that. And number three, uh, access to money, both private money, largely funded, uh, I would say to a great degree funded by very deep pocketed donors, but also public really are after policies that will open the floodgates of taxpayer funding for their initiative. Absolutely. I mean, I think that focus on power is peace. We can talk about what Christian nationalism is, but half a second, let's say what it is not. It is not religion. It is not Christianity. It's not patriotic. It is, as Catherine said, a political idiot, rather toxic one at that, that appropriates, misappropriates, and, and uses, abuses the symbols and language of Christianity, uh, or, or religious nationalism can do that with other religions in other countries. But, you know, that think about that phrase nationalism, like the phrase white nationalism, white nationalism, we all know, doesn't mean that you are white in the nation or that you're white and patriotic. It is saying that we should be a nation uh, defined by white. It's, it's using that adjective to say this is what the noun should be. So Christian nationalism is saying the nation should be defined by Christianity, merging those identities in ways that don't make sense for the constitution because this is a nation people are free to worship as they wish or not worship at all and it doesn't make sense christianity because we are an ancient religion or an international global religion and jesus while he did say go make disciples spoke to everyone he never said you're uh, only welcome in my movement if you're from this nation he never said that uh you aren't really hebrew or jewish if you aren't with me you know, he didn't conflate those ideas folks to everyone, and we're called to do the same. You know, talk about ways to identify Christian. Catherine mentioned that phrase, America as a nation. That's the big one. Uh, another one is Judeo-Christian values. You hear that phrase. And what I've noticed, ever someone talks about Judeo-Christian values, take Bill Barr, the former attorney general. He gave a speech to the University of Notre Dame's law school a couple of years ago, talking about why this nation needs to be founded. I mean, it, it follow the Judeo-Christian values we were founded on. And every single example he gave, the alleged Judeo-Christian values was a Christian New Testament example. Judeo peace is just lip service. And the only proof you need for more proof of that, in November, uh, speaking as part of his Reawaken America, General Michael Flynn stood in a megachurch that's known for its anti-Semitic pastor, John Hagee, and said, America is one nation under God, and that means one religion. That comment got a lot of headlines. I don't think enough of the headlines focused on its ties to an anti-Semitic past. It's really chilling. You know, it was basically an anti-Semitic phrase, but it's this belief that only conservative Christians, only Christians, but really conservative, make true Americans. And those conservative Christians deserve freedoms and rights that other Americans don't. So it is that, like Catherine says, this this project of gaining power at all, no matter who you are, no matter whose rights you have to overturn, and no matter how many elections. That's a, that's a, you've got so many uh, great points there. And, uh, I, and I think it's really important to note that is religious nationalism is not unique to America, uh, certainly not unique to what we're seeing today in, in, uh, in America's Christian nationalists. I actually call it religious nationalism in the subtitle of my book to make clear its similarities with other forms of religious world. So when you see leaders like Dr. Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey or Putin in Russia or leaders in Iran, when they these leaders, political leaders, bind themselves tightly alternative religious figures in their own country in order to consolidate foreign power. We rightly recognize this as of religionalism. And that's sort of what we saw with former President Trump. He always featured reactionary uh, religious leaders, his warm-up act rallies. He uh, established a kind of uh, evangelical advisory council. He allied himself. He basically you know, threw open the doors of access to a reactionary religious leader in our country. I do think it's really important that a lot of folks describe the movement as evangelical, but 
while it includes many evangelicals, it excludes many evangelicals as well, who, who reject the politics of conquest and division that the movement represents. And the movement uh, it sort of draws in representatives of a variety of both Protestant and Protestant religion. The movement would be nowhere without activism of a cadre of ultra-conservative Catholics. Uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics are a segment of uh, that movement are important uh, to Christian nationalism as a political movement. And the movement even derives support from people who do not identify as Christian at all. What sort of unites them is more of a common political vision. And, you know, a lot of people describe this as a theocracy. Well, you know, my concern is that they, they're trying to implement certain types of theocratic policies in our law. If you look at some of the recent court, um, the way they're interpreting the law, but, but it's more than that. It's, it's they're, the theocratic Democratic policies are being implemented in service of a larger goal, which is this is a movement that rejects democratic elections. It rejects, you know, considers elections. They don't like the way it goes. They consider those elections illegitimate. That that message was spread through the networks of Christian nationalism, uh, the political movement of Christianism, which consists of right-wing policy groups, um, legal advocacy organizations, legislative initiatives, uh, networking organizations like policy that get the leadership on the same page. Um, so the movement has a sort of dense organizational infrastructure. And some of the key messages that were spread were, number one, you know, uh, elections integrity, which is really just a way of sort of concern trolling about the concepts that they don't like. They reject the principles of equality and pluralism, represent the best of the American promise. Um, and uh, the ultimate goal is kind of more authority of governance. Leaders are bubble wrapped in sanctimony as a way to insulate themselves from any democratic check on their power any way of sort of examining how they're doing business. And we saw with our uh, former President Trump, he was trying to do that to make himself like, you can't attack me, you can't investigate my corruption, my nepotism, because look, I'm a holy guy, or at least I'm surrounded by holy God. So, uh, you know, the way I think of it, this is a movement that is exploiting conservative Christians in order to exploit the rest. Yeah, I, I, all of that, 100%. Um, two, two things come to mind. One on this political side, uh, it, it is a political movement. And as such, sometimes, Shana, when you ask, how can you identify Christianism? Some of the markers aren't explicitly religious. They're, they're political tactics that we then see Jesus's name being grafted on, run by the same people who earlier that day or the next day try to identify themselves very explicitly. So Paul Gosar, the Arizona congressman, got in some uh, hot water with pundits, unfortunately not with his own party, for putting these videos out of him as a cartoon murdering Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. Well, Gosar also described himself as a proud path and made a big to-do about not attending Pope Prayer. And so, you know, it's these authoritarian violent tactics coming from someone's religion to build up his career. I love the journalism. They've got a good one pager on uh, what Christian nationalism can look like. And a lot of the specific examples are things like fearing refugees, holding anti-immigrant views, approval of approving of authoritarian tactics, Catherine's talking about, like demanding people show respect for national symbols, not letting the black football players take a knee during the national anthem, um, condoning police violence, in, especially towards black Americans. You know, the, the Professor of Philosophy Jason Stanley has a book, How Fascism Works, and he talks about law and order as a phrase. We hear that all the time, and I don't mean fantastic Sam Waterston TV show, but I'm the candidate of law and order, what Nixon and Trump say. 
But what they really mean is how some, some categories of people, the people different than you, are themselves as illegal. You're a distant American or as, as an immigrant. You're an immigrant, you must feel you know, your mere existence, violation of law and order. So they use these, these languages to gen up fear, to divide Americans intentionally, to say the only reason you no longer have power that you used to have in this wonderful, glorious past that never actually existed. Uh, the only reason you've lost that power is because of those people over there. So let's take away their power, give it to you. And in this case, conservative Christian. So how do you recognize Christian nationalism? You see the tactics of fascism wrapped up with the cross, but that's political. The other piece to all this that we shouldn't overlook is culture. <clears throat> and, you know, the researchers, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, talk about uh, Christian nationalism as both a political ideology. Catherine and I both really focus on and a frame. And that's something where you see that identity. I'm an American Christian and those things go hand in hand. They, I'm an American and I'm a Christian, but those are two separated. Where we see those things being wrapped up as one in the culture, in what you wear, in the schools you attend from K through 12 to college and onward, the music, the news, the entertainment and the channels, and all that, that bound up together. And that can seep into our church well. And so sometimes not well, our focus, but just small and insidious and seemingly harmless in progressive and moderate. So I want to, sometimes we even see Christian nationalism in the Episcopal church, not with this focus on power, not it, but in ways that maybe blind us to the, the worst ways. You know, how many times have we heard the phrase Judeo-Christian value, not bad in an eye, because we're so used to it, or America's a Christian nation, and we roll our eyes, and we don't like it, and we know it's not true, but we're so used to it, and the way we get used to these things are, are things like the flag on our, or this just came up last month, you know, is planning a service at our church, on Sunday, July, I think it was July 3rd, but you know, July 4th weekend. And the collect for independence is Lord God Almighty, whose name the founders of this country won liberty for themselves and for a book of common prayer that the founders won our liberty in God. Uh, and it's a small thing. Some of the founders did, some of them didn't. And as for the ones who did, that's not the part of what they did. We should be celebrating. Fortunately, you can flip to a different prayer, the collect for the nation. And it's a prayer that we just, as a, it's a much better prayer. It's a much better way to celebrate where we are and who our community is still being Christian. But it's those little things that pop up or like the Episcopal Church in DC, St. John's Lafayette Square, did such a good job standing up to Donald Trump using the church for his photo op, but also they like to call themselves the Church of the Presidents because every president has worshiped there. They have pew kneeler with the president's names and seal of the presidency on the, um, they don't worship power. They preach liberation theology and spoken truth to power, but they celebrate their proximity. And it could be a lot worse than it is. But when you talk about power and national identity in a Christian context that way, maybe you can keep it healthy, but you become blind to those who reopen the door so, uh, you've made so many terrific points. And uh, I think it's, as, as you said, Christian nationalism is not describing people who happen to be Christian and have patriotic sentiments. It, it involves a rejection of a series of liberal democratic norms like equality, pluralism, uh, elections, the separation of church and state, and involves the embrace of authoritarian tech in which a dominant religion or culture power of try to impose an, its allegedly moral vision society expensive us. It's incredibly identitarian, grounds legitimacy of the group that perceives itself as being the true American. And look, I think it's fine for political leaders to uh, talk about their faith and uh, uh, acknowledge their faith in the public square at, while still acknowledging the religious pluralism and diversity of our country. And many politicians do that. There's you know, nothing wrong with that. But um, a lot of times you'll hear questions like, um, oh, is, 
you know, we're, you've heard people say, we're just trying to, you know, celebrate our faith in the public square, you know, we're being um, suppressed from being able to um, uh, talk about, you know, our faith in the public square. Um, and when you hear that, it's often really a way of misframing the issue at hand. It's often coming from those folks who are, in fact, trying to flate in the minds public their religion with, with what it means to be a true American. And by doing so, they're really lending their support to an anti-democratic agenda. Um, and I think to understand this better, we can look back to our former president, Donald Trump, and what he did uh, throughout. See, we can uh, look to those reawakened America um, that you, uh, Reverend Emsall, has been so involved with in trying to bring some transparency to what, what they're about. They're, again, promoting uh, this radically anti-democratic, frankly, anti-American ideology um, and political. Everything about Christian nationalism gives me chills. Um, it offends both my understandings, as you've both pointed out so well, of what politics can be and maybe should be in America. But it also deeply offends me as a Christian. So I'd like to talk more about the ways that we can see Christian nationalism really truly being counter to the gospel, to what God calls us to do and be. Uh, well, I do count the ways. <laughs> Go ahead, Kat. Well, just very quickly, I mean, I think that, you know, the, a lot of the folks who are, are I would count as supporters of the Christian nationalist movement or even the leaders, they do worship much sincerity and passion. Many of them do as anyone else. And we all know that Christianity in America, or like, like every other religion, is incredibly diverse. So, you know, I think most American pr Christians reject the politics of Christian nationalism, see uh, Christian Christianity is having something to do with care for the soul and loving one's neighbors. Um, but the folks who are involved have been to a lot of spent a lot of time in churches where pastors are very political and lending their support to this movement. And um, many of the folks in the pews are very sincere when they when they're being led to vote. You know their so-called biblical values, which their pastors will tell them, you know, or, or inevitably boil down two or three issues on those so-called culture wars. But again, that shows how they're being exploited. They're by casting their vote for the candidate who promises to um, reestablish America as a so-called Christian nation or, or, or end abortion, you know, full stop, no exceptions, they're lending support. That's a good point. Earlier, I said Christian nationalism is not Christian. And I'll say that all day long until I'm blue in the face. But what I won't say is that Christian nationalists are not Christian. Uh, mm. We don't know somebody's heart. We don't know their relationship with God. And that's as true as the false, uh, that is as true of the false prophets, charlatans, and grifters leading the movement as it is the people in the pews. And so I'm not going to say that Christian nationalists aren't Christian. But I mean, Shana, you're right. Christian nationalism is really counter to says we will know them by their fruits. Look at the fruit and, and let me count the ways. The first thing that comes to mind, um, Catherine was talking earlier about religious on in, in Hungary and, and Putin in Russia, who is just co-opted the West. I will pray. Uh, the relationship between Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church resembles the relationship between Hitler and the Deutsche Bahn, resembles the relationship between the MAGA movement, not just Trump, but the post-Trump MAGA movement and the American Christian right resembles the relationship between the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And so I guess in that way, Christian nationalism actually does reflect the God, just not the part you want to be. In, in the gospel, 
you know, and more in the, the historical surrounding the gospel to give us its context, see that the leaders of, of the, the court, the Sanhedrin, they wanted to keep their power, they wanted religion, and they wanted proximity to power so they would have agreements with the local Roman governor, Pilate. And that was beneficial to both. They got to keep their, their cultural leadership position, helping the governor keep order. So, and they got proximity to power. And the governor got people to help him because Rome didn't really care if you follow your religion as long as you also follow theirs and as long as you. But what this could lead to was religious leaders cutting corners on their religion, punishing their own people for standing up to it. And that's what Christ in the end on the cross. And that's why, you know, Rome crucified him with the help of his own people, his, his religion. Um, and so in bed with empire is to be in bed with Pilate, same the religious leaders of 2000 years ago. So that's, that's a huge warning, Christian nationalism. I wrote about that for NBC on Good Friday. I think about Christian nationalism and the MAGA movement every, I was not the point of Good Friday, but it's, it's hard to escape. Then there are the more obvious ways Christian Christian nationalism uh, contradicts and, and distorts the gospel. First of all, I think about misinformation. The Trump's big lie, stolen election, that wasn't stolen. It was in the most secure election in American history. Um, and everything we look at around the insurrection in January 6th, and now you've got local county Republican officials in places like Arizona refusing to certify primary results already this, because they don't trust the voters. But they don't have any specific reasons or polls. It's just a hunch. And on a hunch, they won't certify lots of voters. Uh, this is misinformation. It's lies about democracy, like we've seen so many lies about COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine. You know, Clay Clark is the organizer of the Reawaken America Tour, which I imagine for about a minute. And he's the guy who's got Mike Flynn and, and Roger Stone touring the country's megachurches. And he believes, he, he is basing this whole tour around the COVID misinformation as well as And Clark believes that the COVID-19 vaccines are a mix of Luciferian crypto technology and Jeffrey Epstein's DNA merge create a new race of human. I, that's even beyond QAnon conspiracy theory. He's also, by his own admission, anti-vaccine, not anti-COVID. Small polio, measles, mumps, rubella, the flu. He's just anti-vaccine because of lies like, you get Dr. Stella Emanuel comes out there, one of the 12 biggest purveyors of COVID misinformation on Facebook. She believes that diseases are caused by demons sleeping with us in our dream. Um, there's always been climate change misinformation, other, other lies and things like that. And I'm going on about misinformation and lies because you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you and do not bear false witness. I mean, truth is one of the cardinal hallmark values, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God, the truth of the good news, but just plain truth. And these folks are using lies to grab power for themselves instead of using the truth to love their neighbor. And that's the other bit. They don't care who they are. Uh, not just on January 6th, we think about the insurrection, but remember what Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and other Christian nationalist politicians inside the Capitol were already doing that day, trying to throw out the ballots of black and brown voters and overturn the election, overturn the will of the people. We, the people, get to pick our leaders, not that the, the leaders don't pick their voters, but that's what they were trying to do. That's not loving your, you know, silencing your neighbor's voice, not loving your neighbor, passing legislation that harms your neighbor, that takes away rights from women, from LGBTQ people, from so many other categories in this country is not what love looks like. Jesus empowered, whether it was the women at the well or Martha and Mary, and that is the exact opposite of what we see coming from Trump, certainly, but also Ron DeSantis. I think it's so interesting that uh, Christian national leaders reserve some of the most poisonous words for Christians 
who uh, do not conform to their agenda. You hear it all a, a lot, a lot. And I've also seen presentations, you know, video presentations that they've done about representatives of the, I'm going to use the term left very loosely, sort of the moderate liberal left, you know, non-extremist um, who are off called, you know, derided having a biblical view or being fake Christian, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's really important uh, message that they feel like they need to get out to the rank and file in order that people not be led, quote unquote, astray by the wrong entity. And what, when you are discussing misinformation today, that's really, I mean, misinformation is a tool of autocrats everywhere. It's a way of, you know, separating people facts makes them a lot easier to control. And Christian National really effective tool for trolling information to a certain segment of the population. It's a way of creating people who will be receptive to certain forms of disinformation immune to other forms, which the leadership will, they call now, they'll call fake news or the lying media. And that gives them and their political allies a tremendous degree of power and control. When you get people to believe in all this crazy that you were discussing earlier, well, they've already gone down the rabbit hole. No, they'll, they'll continue down the rabbit hole, leave any tell. Um, and when I attended or San Diego, I was really shocked the degree, you know, to which misinformation really had suffused the entire event. There were, it was like QAnon, and I heard Grace, somebody on a podcast that was being done live, they were talking about great replacement theories and oh they're you know the vaccine is they're going to kill off 80 percent of americans and replace them with you know immigrants blah 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 I mean, absolutely crazy stuff a lot of vaccine misinformation a lot of health um i'm sorry information um and of course the big was alive stone there was another lady there she used to be very involved in latinas for trump and she had lost her bid for a state off and she went on some rant about how it had somehow been stolen from her or um, some fat or, you know, their irregularities in election. And it really shows this, that hits home the fact that this is an anti-democratic political movement. It it rejects liberalism. It rejects democracy in, in that it thinks that the opposition is completely and inherently illegitimate and has no right to rule whatsoever. And that's, in, in a way, um, an element of something that you touched upon earlier, Reverend Emsall, which is the F word, <laughs> it's, it's fascism, which I've got to say is, you know, a lot of people are starting to use that term fascism and, and a lot of other folks find the term tendentious or historically inaccurate. Um, and sometimes, and it's not, in, but, but sometimes the debate can get. But I think if we look at the essential features of Christian nationalism and other form and, and forms of fascism that we've seen in say 20th century, Italy or uh, Germany or Spain, we can see some shared. So the first is, of course, the rejection of liberalism and right, um, and the idea that the political opposition is just illegitimate, full stop. And that's one. So the a second feature is that it's um, it's about identity. It perceives its identity to represent the true authentic people, to be grounded in him, even if it involves falsification, real, um, and to have sort of unique, say, irreplaceable essence. So a third feature that's related to that is that it considers this all-important heritage to be under existential threat, feels persecuted, aligned, and disrespect. And you see this in Christian nationalism. One of the ways it uh, mobilizes mass political power is by involving, you know, manufacturing a sense of persecution. Um, and then among the rank and file and directing it at, at their political enemies. Another thing that um, fascism, other forms of fascism throughout history and have in common is that 
um, it, it demonizes others or divides us into the we and the they, the pure versus the impure. If you look at um, the Nazis, of course, they had the Jews, Romas, uh, gay people, and other targets. Um, but present day, I would say present day uh, religious nationalists focus on secular elites as they see them, the quote unquote woke mob, uh, the homosexual agenda, religious liberals, um, a certain minority group. Yeah. So so you start to see these similarities. And uh, of course, um, uh, I, I think finally, I would say that there's a sort of commitment to the aesthetic of violence, you know? So fascism tends to endorse violence as an acceptable strategy um, and, and in some ways celebrate. We've been seeing a bit of this in Christian nationalism. You see a lot of brandishing of guns, attacking government institutions, um, leaders of the movement will defend the leaders of January 6th, you know, like when I was at the last Road to Majority Conkey gathering of religious right leaders and strategists put on by Ralph Reed, who's a very long time seasoned and astute strategist. You know, he was in conversation with Eric Erickson and Dinesh D'Souza, sort of thought leaders of um, Christian nationalist movement. And they were saying things like, you know, we need to stand behind the January 6th people. And, you know, we need to defend our guys. You know, we, we won't defend our guys even when they're good guys. And Ralph, Ralph Reed sort of nodded and said, I think taught our movement and Trump as call normalized the idea of political violence. I mean, he retweeted violent uh, video, violence directed as political entity, um, employed a lot of rhetoric of violence. And I do think that this is a danger of our, so we're not dealing with like just a, the danger of a of a pure theocracy. We're really dealing with the danger of authoritarianism that exploits religion and that exploits um, religious people in order to exploit the rest. I'm sure Shane has got so many smart questions, but there's so so much here I want to pull on. Is um, so uh, forgive me, Shane. I'm stalling the conversation here, but um, so much of what you said. Let's let's talk about January 6th for for a second because it's not just defending January 6th since then, but that matter. I mean, look at how. Michael Flynn asked by the January 6th committee if he felt that the violence of January 6th, either legally or morally, and he pleaded the fifth to boast. And this is a man who is Catholic and who cites Archbishop Vagano as his mentor and cannot say that violence morally just not justified. Then, you know, this is a man who comes out on the Reawaken America tour and says, we preachers should preach the Constitution more than the Bible. And yet asked when, if he believes peaceful transition of presidential power, he also fifth so mm, much. Telling. But even on January 6th and in the days, let's start before it. Franklin Graham, the, the evangelist, was asked, did Trump win the election? And he said, well, uh, you know, I, I'm no expert on this, but president says votes were stolen and I'm inclined to believe him when he says. So you've got Donald Trump and Paula White Kane and others. I mean, sorry, Franklin Graham and Paula White Kane and other evangelists and preachers spreading the big lot. On January 2020, the day before they failed, you had a dry run for January. The, the Stop the Steal Jericho was this big Washington, D.C. rally. Mike Flynn was there. Uh, Cardinal Vagano beamed in a message. Bishop Strickland from Texas was there. Pastor Glock was there. Uh, worship leader Sean Foyt was there. It was a religious event titled Jericho, the city in the Bible where genocide of the Canaan. You know they picked that that name on purpose. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down and then we charge in to bring the walls of the Capitol down. Charge in for war tomorrow and uh, Proud Boys were on hand. Roger Stone was there and he spoke all about his thread with the heads of the, the Proud Boys. And now Stone is out there touring megachurches talking about his Christianity. So it, it's this big religious event with multiple paths spreading the big lie. The very next day when the 
insurrection happens. We know about the shofars blowing. We know about the prayer on the hostage floor when it was occupied territory there. You've got crosses right alongside the gallows mint and all sorts of religious symbols, imagery. So much for the Prince of Peace, right? And here's another way. Those who live by the sword die, but here's another way all in contra gospels, the violence that Catherine mentioned, the aesthetic of violence. And, and what really jumps out at me too is the way the leaders of this movement don't have to actually call for violence. They, they're smart. They know they'll get in trouble if they say, pick up a gun and shoot it. They do it in more insidious ways, create what I call a permission structure for mm. political violence. And then they let their followers connect the dots with them. So, well, gosh, Catherine, you mentioned they demonize others. Clay Clark, the organizer of the Reway, he literally set, tells people in the room, they are Team Jesus against Joe Biden, Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates on Team State. Now, you don't get more demonizing than the head demon. So you you use this religious rhetoric, really raise the stakes, apocalyptic, make the other side as bad, talk about how life and liberty are at stake, all these things. You talk about weapon things like you say, this is for God, so obviously all attacks are okay, right? And then the Reawaken America brings out the people who are present on the 6th. They bring out the family of the woman killed in the house chamber. They turn her into a martyr. January 6th, uh, Mike Flynn plays down all the violence on the school board and, and local violence like that just dismisses it. He doesn't say, hey, he pretends like it does assist. He says, how dare the left attack us for advocating at school boards and they call us domestic terror. And then he plays video clips of people doing peace. Those aren't the people we call them terror, but that's how they frame their critics' rhetoric to downplay and defend the violence. Everyone in the here, what's they connected? They go, okay, so violence. And we're not talking about random murders or or, uh, you know, Kenny Chesney concert with fucking parking lot bro. This is setting up more violence than this. There's a moment society later. So you can't say, oh gosh, no violence happened at that rally. What are you talking about? You're crazy. It, it's the structure they are building her. And the last couple of things I want to say, because I know, Shane, you've got more questions. Um, Catherine was talking about misinformation and the ways it used. And I'm reminded that I went to Germany in 2017, presiding bishop Stella UN climate. And it was my first trip abroad. So I stuck around a few days. And I went to uh, Munich and I, I went to first. And this was 2017, it was, uh, what, uh, November 2017, 10, 11 months into the Trump. And in the museum, it, it, you know, exhibits that were decades old. So they were not meant to the political. And I kept seeing stuff about Hitler talking about the lying sounded a lot. Mm. And I saw talks about Hitler's attacks on judge and other critics. This was right after Trump was demonizing judges who were throwing out his initial attempts at the Muslim. You know, there's another attack on them. And uh, the academic elites, I mean, it was all the same people that, that Trump was demonizing and seeing that Hitler language jump out. But the lying press fake news one really jumped out because of all the misinformation. And that connects back to religion, not just the way Hitler used the Deutsch Christ, you know, prop himself up, but the fact that we see this in MAGA too. When they tear down press, when they tear down the academic elites, when they tear down the uh, ju the judges, the judiciary, the celebrities, they then use religion to turn themselves into holy. So you can't believe anyone else but them, and that's okay because God is. And and so misinformation really ties into religion that way. And I'm sorry, one last thing because it amuses me. Um, I will finish where Catherine started, which is the attacks that they launch on progressive Christians and moderate Christians. We're lucky when they even acknowledge. So there's this belief that only a Christian can be a good American. There's also a belief that only a political conservative can be a Christian. Uh, so my organization, Faithful America, successfully got several channels to drop the Jim Baker show, start of the pandemic, when the televangelist Jim Baker, sort of in his second iteration of his career, uh, was hawking a fake COVID cure. And he got in a lot of trouble with Trump agencies and, and Republican states as general. And he got in trouble with credit card companies that processed donations to his, his, company, his, his website. I won't take credit for that. 
but he also got in trouble with stage that, that and he spends almost a whole chapter in his memoir his latest book whining about all that and complaining about how frank how faithful america goes after christians like him and never mentioned that i'm a priest that my boss on our board is a baptist 80 percent of our members are christian that never comes up we're just an organization that goes after tony perkins has described us in similar terms i wrote an op-ed for newsweek decrying christianism's links to january 6th i said it's not christian and Perkins complained, see, this is what they say about Christian. No, that's what we say about Christian nationalism. But here Perkins is subtly trying to say all Christianity is Christian nationalism and vice versa. The last example I'll give, a week and a half ago, Marjorie, well, by the time this airs a month ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene just openly embraced the label selling t-shirt. And she says, people who criticize this hate America and they hate God. And I'm not paraphrasing her. That's a quote. They hate America and they hate God. And her Instagram ad selling this t-shirt has big, you know, huge font letters that say stand against the godless most of the critics have been christian you know we we've gathered over thirteen thousand signatures to crying green for this all of them Christ christians against christian nationalism's lead organizer amanda tyler had an op-ed in cnn to cry you know chuck curry organ minister had some great tweets about this it's christian opposition which you got because if you're not a conservative political conservative you're not before we wind down because we are almost out of time i think and amongst this amazing conversation from start to finish, you two have been naming ways that we can, as individuals and as groups, fight back, so to speak, against Christian nationalism. Faithful America, which you lead, Nathan. Um, reading your book, Catherine, let alone the other resources that you two have already mentioned, are there other ways, as we close, that you would like to talk about how we can respond faithfully against Christian nationalism? Listen, I uh, admire Faithful America so much. I really admire the activism. And I do think it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. Everybody needs to sort of step up and do their part. And uh, it, it involves uh, investing in democratic political infrastructure, defending voting rights, um, helping people to sort of see the bigger picture and understand why uh, my judges matter, why, you know, why voting really matters. I mean, it's interesting. I remember hearing Ralph Reed say at one of the one of his conferences, pay no attention, attention to the polls. All that matters turns out on election. And he's right. Listen, this is a movement that represents a minority of the country and a minority of Christians. Um, but they vote in disproportionate numbers because the infrastructure of the Christian nationalist movement, the right wing policy groups, the advocacy groups, the networking initiatives, the legislative initiatives, like um, the vast messaging sphere, all of that serves as a giant get out the vote machine. So um, they vote in, in a country where 40 to 50 people don't bother to turn out to vote. You don't need a majority. All you need is to disproportionately organ already. And that's one thing that they've done really well. They've organized their the rank and file. They, um, they you know, make people uh, understand why voting matters. And in some cases, you see speakers at these events stand up and say, this election is about judges, 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 you know, not so much about the Front run, oh, we don't need we don't need a savior. We already have a savior. We need someone who's gonna fight for us. That's one of the ways that they the folks justified Port Trump. So we need to be able to rebel and make them understanding make them under voting really stand. Look, this is a movement that claims to stand for family, but politicians it drives support for are promoting policies that are making it so much harder for so many American families to succeed. They're um, promoting economic policy or eroding rights for the workforce, um, ensuring low taxes or no tax for the rich while making it harder 
for American families to um, actually pay their bills. So helping people kind of understand the big, bigger picture is important. They're, you know, they're against individuals they, that, you know, they're against allowing people to make the most important uh, healthcare decisions they need for lives or um, access uh, often life-saving care, healthcare, they're hollowing out public education. So it's really I think important to help people look at the bigger picture. Um, I used to think we should have like kind of like a plus, you know, when you were young, did you ever go to like, you know, like a, see a music show and you'd have a, you were a plus one, like, you know, you put your name down, you get a ticket and you have a plus one. I used to think we should have a, like a similar kind of hang for going to the polls. Every, don't take yourself to the polls. Don't just hold yourself and take a friend or, or take, you know, four, five friends, you know, and uh, that's the kind of stuff that they do. They do a lot of relational organizing. They organize people not calling random folks on the telephone. They, they get people organized within their church and their, within their friends and family. I think that that kind of engagement, voter engagement. Well, here's another thing, like voting rights is really important because this is a movement that has seen the numbers. They recognize that they're a minority of the population, even as they vote in proportionate numbers. They don't have the numbers. They're passing grotesquely uh, unpopular policy. So they know they can't win in a fair fight. Why they're so determined to enact policies that restrict voting in um, dis districts that are disproportionately comprised of people of color and, and Democrat, you know, because they they don't they want to sort of essentially steal the vote of a lot of people who aren't going to vote their way. They're trying to actually allow folks to discount the conflict. Voting is the foundation of our democracy. A representative voting is key. So we really need to stand voting, support politics who are doing their best to defend voting. I know. So when I think about what people can do about Christian nationalism, there are really four things that come to mind right now. And one of them, I think, jumps off of everything Catherine just said so well, which is about just being involved on the side of voting rights and equal rights in secular ways, in regular democratic ways, lowercase d, in civic ways, but do so explicitly as Christian. Right now, part of where Christian nationalism and the religious right get their power is by claiming to have a monopoly on Christianity, as we were discussing with the ways they attack progressive and moderate Christian. Uh, look, church and state need to be separate. I'm a firm believer in the separate state, but church and state are institution and those institutions should not mix. Faith and politics is a different story. I, I had a law school professor once tell me that politics is nothing more than the art of how we live together. Office politics, school politics, politics, and faith ought to have a lot to say about how we live together. Politics itself, right, comes from that Greek word polis, people, society. Uh, so get involved in politics, let your faith values guide you and be explicit about it. But those values need to be the common good and building power for everyone for advancing equal rights, not taking away rights from others so that you can have more. The exact opposite of how Christian nationalists use religion. So wear your Christianity on your sleeve. At the, at the very least, get involved. Ask others, your fellow volunteers, why they're involved. And when they ask you why, you can say it's because you're faith. And that provides a totally different counter narrative and a witness. Go volunteer at parents. Volunteer for a politician's campaign. Get involved with, even if it's the Red Cross, something positive in society. Clear about uh, three other things. Three other things you can do to get in. Uh, one, recognize Christian nationalism in your area. Educate yourself. So when we see local bills and bills in state legislatures attacking non-existent critical race theory in, you know, grade school curriculums. It's a perfectly reasonable graduate school curriculum. It's not in your fourth grade class. And if it is, what's wrong with saying matters in history? But when you see these attacks on teaching the truth about slavery, and when you see 
attacks on trans people just trying to live their lives and be who they are made in the image of God. Don't confuse Forbes roots as they are coordinated, even at this local level, coming from people like discredited historian David Barton, Tony Perkins at the Hate Group Family Research Council. They have this thing they call Project Blitz. It drafts model legislation. It suggests it to state legislators. And then they use what they call Christian impact teams, these volunteer teams inside evangelical churches to turn out not just voter turnout come the midterms or the presidential election, but pressure on uh, legislators to pass what they're calling those. You got to recognize that these aren't bills. And when we expose them for what they are, people realize the advantage of it. Another way to recognize Christian nationalism is to go to ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. I think I mentioned it earlier. Check out this website. It's I, I don't run this website. It's not my org, but I have to recommend it. They've got great curriculums, study guides, and resources in your church to learn about Christian nationalism. Uh, it's it, it, See how it's in your community, what you can do to push back theologically. And this has been endorsed by a number of denominational leaders, including our own Episcopal presiding Bishop Curry, who is in Lynch's endorsement, but also participated in some of them. Check out ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. And I'll wrap up by telling you about two faithful Americans now that, that I'd love for you to come to faithfulamerica.org, sign the petitions. After you sign petitions, we'll send you next steps, you know, phone calls to make, social media, things like that. But first, Catherine and I have talked a lot about misinformation. We really need to, I'll say it, deplatform the far right's lies and misinformation that masquerade as new. Uh, and I'm not talking about limiting free speech. You've got free speech and the private corporations that decide what channels they're going to carry, they've got two. So we need to use our free speech to say, hey, Comcast Cable, hey, Verizon, hey, hey, uh, iHeartRadio, use your free speech to stop platforming the free speech means the far right is allowed. Ever it say doesn't pass to someone else's platform. So when the country feels gridlocked, how can we reform the Senate? How can we reform the House? It feels like everything, you know, the billionaires have it all locked up. One area that we can still work on looking at the cable companies and radio companies and internet companies pinned on the mark, pinned on you and me, yet still platform far right misinformation about these campaigns are winnable. Direct TV and Verizon both just dropped channel OAN, which was to the right of Fox News, even worse on election wise. Now we need them to be dropping Newsman, Real America's Voice, which is the worst when it comes to religion. And yes, Fox itself, where Tucker Carlson, our fellow Episcopalian, is spreading the Great Replacement, uh, which is incredibly anti-Semitic. So the, and then the last thing, you know, Catherine and I have mentioned any number of times, the reawakening. Uh, it, it's it's this mostly megachurch, although some secular venues, tour of dozens of pastors, several of whom are tied to the Proud Boys, and then a whole bunch of Republican MAGA celebrities who are responsible for Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, there's Mike Lindell, the MyPillow dude, there's uh, Patrick Byrne, the overstock billionaire who went with Flynn to, to visit with Trump in that crazy Oval Office meeting. There's Alex Jones, the InfoWars guy who's hurting the Sandy Hook victims and family, all of whom were responsible for January 6th. Now they're taking their message. I call the tour January 6th ghost. Others have called it a who's who of the new Christian right or QAnon 2.0. Y'all, it's coming. To the, it's going to be in post. Uh, it's at the State Line Speedway, so not one of the regular church stops, but a, a venue with the size they want. They pack in three to 5,000. Can't and they give pastors 50% off the ticket price so that their lies keep spreading in town through all the areas, church months and months. It's that infrastructure they build long-term. So, you know, we're recording this a ways before Reawaken actually happens, but this will be released a couple of weeks before Reawaken happens. So by the time this podcast comes out, I'm going to make sure Shana knows what's happening locally and tell you clergy will be speaking out. There will be Christian opportunity. Out. We don't encourage you to get in anybody's face, let them uh, hurt you or spread COVID or anything like that. But we've got to make it clear that the Reawaken America Tour 
does not speak for us in unity or for us. Christian Faithful America has been working with clergy from California to Ohio uh, at past reawakening that happened. We've been sending a mobile billboard that exposes Eric Trump, who's also these things, and Mike Flynn as false prophets who are using our faith to undermine us. So keep an eye out for that billboard in Post Falls and Spokane and raise your voice, Philism. Now in the midterms, vote, but do so much. Do it because that's the only hatred. That is awesome. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I'm so honored to be the small part of hosting and I can't wait for this to go live. Thank you. Thanks for having us on and I'm sorry to be such a blowhard. Thanks for joining us at the intersection of faith and curiosity. The theme music we use was provided by John Spencer and our cover art was designed by Teresa Great. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for future episodes, email us at podcast at allsaintsrichland.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you.